so good to be with you. Uh, the last time I was with Icon, you were in a different building, uh, but I have yet to preach uh, here or with you, so this is a, a blessing to get to be with you, and I'm, I'm grateful. I would love to just start with prayer and invite God's Spirit to speak through God's Word. Let's do that. Father, we are so dependent, so needy for you. Every good and perfect gift comes down from you. You sustain our very breath. Our life is in your hands. Your mercies are new again this morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we pray that you, by your spirit, would speak now, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would unite us around your intentions, that you would align us according to your will, that Jesus, you would be glorified because of our time together, and as we leave, we would go equipped, encouraged, and built up for the work you have for us this week. We ask that you would do this for your glory, Jesus, for our joy, and it's in your name we pray, amen. All right, normally um, I know you'd stand for the reading of God's word, but I'm gonna be breaking it up a little bit. So, and those of you who are watching at home, welcome. We're glad you're with us. Uh, I am uh, really blessed to get to preach. I have not preached in Seattle for a year. If you just wanna like add that up. So uh, about a year, maybe like 10, 11 months, because I took a sabbatical, then I stepped down for being the lead teaching pastor at Doxa. I've done some preaching in other states, but not here. So this is my first time in about a year in this region. So it's a joy to get to preach. Yeah, it's fun to be with you. And um, I, I, send, I bring the greeting from Doxa. They want to say hello. Uh, some of you know that um, uh, you were a church plant that we got behind and encouraged and got to send some people to. So in a lot of ways, you feel like family to us. So I just want to make sure we give you our greeting and let you know that we love you guys very much. So that's on behalf of Doxa Church on the other side of the water. And I, today I want to talk about this idea from Jeremiah 29 about uh, exile, in particular thriving in exile. Uh, you heard uh, a lamentation uh, that we got to read together, and that was uh, for God's people in the midst of Babylon, in exile. And uh, they, they were, had, had been rebellious, had turned from God, and God turned them over to their sin and their rebellion, and they ended up as exiles in Babylon. And in many cases, uh, if, if you know the story, it was one of the, the darkest moments in Israel's history. Uh, they, they had been ripped out of their homes, taken out of Jerusalem. The city was destroyed. They were brought into another place where they felt completely outside, uh, completely rejected, completely de devastated. And so I want to ask the question, in light of all we've gone through the last couple years, how do we thrive in exile? Now, uh, to be clear, we have not experienced anything close to what Israel experienced just to be clear, like I think we need to like give ourselves a little bit of a, a, a reality check. I mean, it's been hard, but we haven't gone through what they went through. We haven't gone through what, the, what Afghanistan went through and what many of the refugees that are now coming into our city have experienced. Most of us have never experienced that. And yet, what we have gone through has not been easy. The idea of exile is that it's not always that you're taken out of your place and put in another place, but it often refers to the concept that we don't feel at home anymore. Things are not as they were. We find ourselves kind of like uh, uncentered, unsettled 
And I think for a lot of us, the last couple of years have done that. It has caused many, me included, to be clear, to question a lot of things. And it's been difficult. So I think it's important that we ask this question in light of this crazy that we're in. And what's so crazy is that we have no idea what it's going to be like next month. Right? It's just constantly shifting. As soon as you think you adjusted, it changes again. And that is the nature of exile. At the heart, it's that we don't know where we're at and we don't know where we're going, so we don't know what to do in the midst of it. And so these scriptures that we're gonna look at, I think, are so helpful. I hope they'll be helpful for you today. I'm gonna start with the, one of the most quoted verses in all of scripture, uh, which I will also say is one of the most wrongly quoted scriptures as well. Jeremiah 29, 11. God speaks through his prophet Jeremiah to this, his people while they're in exile in Babylon. This is what he says to them. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now, sadly, this is often one of the most wrongly quoted verses in the scripture because people quote it without knowing the context. And at, at best, it becomes a don't worry, be happy, everything's going to be all right verse, which when we look at the context, you realize that's really the wrong way to read it. Or at worst, it becomes some kind of broken prosperity gospel that promises if you just have enough faith, if you just believe enough, you won't suffer, you're going to get through this, and in fact, you'll get really rich when you do it, right? And that, that's where it's often wrongly applied. But what many don't know is that these words, this verse is actually God's response to a group of false prophets who are speaking a lie to Israel, Okay? They're, they're, they're telling Israel, don't worry, we're going to get out of here really quick. This is a very short-lived reality. God responds, verse 8 in Jeremiah 29, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they encourage you to have, that you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. Can you imagine that just being you know, engraved in scripture forever about you. <laughs> like God's going, you're a bunch of liars and you're doing it in my name. He goes on to, to say this. I've not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord actually says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, referring to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. What he's saying is going, Israel, this is not a short-lived reality. This will be 70 years. I just want you to do the math. What is 70 years? That's a lifetime, right? Most people in this day only live 70 years. Okay? Many, much shorter, in fact, so what he's really saying is you're not going home. Those of you who are alive are going to train up another generation, and that generation is going to get to go home. So your job is to live in a foreign land as a people who are preparing people to be God's people, not only here, but to go back home. I just want you to imagine if you and I said, we only have 70 years to live, which is probably true, maybe 80, maybe 90. And you were told, you're not leaving Seattle, like many who have left. Many of my friends have left the city. 
okay? Alona, it's okay. You can go. But <laughs> I mean, you might be in sin. We can talk about that later. Just kidding. No, 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 no. But, but I want you to just imagine if, if you saw your life as a friend of mine, Steve Leston likes to say, is a vapor. It's short. You have, you have a very short amount of time to, to live for God's glory in the place he's put you. And he wants you to live with a sense of urgency that you're supposed to do it in such a way that those who come behind you have a legacy to walk into that looks like something God would want for his people in his place that he's put them. That's what, that's what the prophet is saying to God's people. He's saying, you're not going home. You're going to die here. So live like you love this place like I love this place. And live in such a way that your kids and grandkids, when they go home, will understand why you were in Babylon and the kind of people God prepared you to be so that when you went home, you didn't forget to be the representatives of God to the world. That's what's going on here. So as we think about our context, and I know, I know for a lot of us, Seattle has been a hard place to live in the last year or so. It's not easy. There's a lot of hard things that are going on in the city. But I, I want us to ask the question, unless, of course, God is calling us elsewhere, if we're here and we're staying, how do we thrive in the midst of it? First of all, we have to believe that God has a plan. And that's the very first the thing he says to Israel. I know the plans I have for you. I have a plan. In 2020, in 2020 and 2021, I decided to remodel my house in Tacoma. I own a rental home there. It's over 100 years old. And if you know much about homes back then, all the rooms were way too small. Okay, So the kitchen was a terrible, like little, like you could hardly get, move around in. It was so tiny. So I, I decided I was going to gut the whole thing and tear down all the walls, um, create a whole new upstairs. So if you would have walked in in the middle of my demolition, you would have walked in and said, nobody should ever live here. This place is a hole. <laughs> it was a mess. But I would have pulled out to you the architectural plans and said, look at what's going to be. Now, it's one of the nicest homes I've ever owned and not lived in now, <laughs> honestly. My wife is always like, why didn't you ever make any of our homes this nice? I'm like, okay, we could go back and move to Tacoma. She's like, no, we'll stay on the east side for now. So. But the, the, the reason why I'd hope is because I could look at the actual plans. I knew what it would look like when we were done. And I want you to know that God has that exact reality for your life. Like he has actual plans. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly where he's taking you. He knows what he's up to. There is nothing about what's going on right now in your life that he is confused about, overwhelmed with, or somehow in the dark on. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he has a plan for you. I don't think this is just true for Israel and Babylon. I believe because God has called you if you're a follower of Jesus, and if you're not yet, he might be calling you today, but he has a plan for your life. In fact, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, if you're listening online and you don't know Jesus, it's likely that this is part of the plan that he has for you. He has a plan. He knows what he's doing. And he wants to assure us that He's not only involved in it, but he has purposes for it. Whatever you're going through. 
By the way, you might go like, hey, today's a great day. I don't, have, I don't even need this message. You will in about a month <laughs> or a year or two years. Like, you're gonna need this. You need to remember that he has a plan for you. My assistant, some of you know Jessica, uh, prior to 2020, she, they found a big mass in her abdomen. And when they went in to operate, they found out that it had grown and got intertwined with all of her intestines. So that was bad, but it got worse. When they took it out, they realized it was cancerous. And they told her it was a treatable cancer, but it was a, a kind of treatable cancer that she would have to take a chemo pill every single day of her life, which means she can never have children. So devastation upon devastation. Two weeks prior to that surgery, her husband, Spencer, lost his job, like many of us did in covid so now she's got a husband without a job, a future without any hope, and a reality she has to deal with every day that makes her sick. Just every time she takes chemo pills, she's gonna get nauseous. It's every day. Well, her husband gets six weeks of severance, which allows him to be at home with her during all this trauma. And at the end of six weeks, the company calls him and offers him his job back with a raise. Now, I asked her if I could tell this story because she said, Jeff, this passage was our hope, that God has plans for us. Now, it doesn't mean things are easy. She still has a future that looks really dark in terms of children. That's really sad. But she knows that God knows what he's doing. And even if it makes no sense to her, he has a plan. And that may be where some of you are at, where you're just like, I just, I just don't get it. I can't see it. It doesn't look good. It looks like the demolition of your rental house, Jeff. It just looks like a mess. And some of you know that two years ago, a little bit over two years ago, my best friend took his life. And I, I went through the darkest night of the soul in 2020 and 2021. Questioned so many things. I mean, I questioned God. I questioned his word. I questioned everything I've done in my life. I mean, I went through so many dark days. And the only thing I could cling to is, God, you, you've got to know what you're doing because this doesn't feel like anything makes sense right now. And maybe that's where you're at. So what do we do in those spaces? We, we believe he has a plan, but what do we do? Well, he goes on. He says, I want you to prosper. <laughs> I got plans to help you prosper. I want you to do something. Don't just sit around or hide out or run away. Engage in the present moment with a plan, with my plan. And this is what he says, verse four. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they may too also have sons and daughters. There's that next generation impact. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. I want you to be thinking about Seattle as you're listening to all of this. Think about where you live. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, don't forget Israel's history. They did this once before. Remember the other place where they were? They weren't in exile, but it became like an exilic experience. Remember Egypt? 
They move to Egypt. They're just a small group of people. They're not that many. They, they, get, they marry off. They have kids. They grow to be huge, millions of people. They do bless Egypt, but then they eventually get taken advantage of in Egypt. Remember, they become slaves. So you've got to think through the, the kind of collective memory of Israel as they're hearing this prophet, Jeremiah, speak these words. They're going backwards. I've got to believe that they're going, hey, we've done this before. <laughs> we know this play. It didn't go well in Egypt. God, you're calling us to run the same play? Well, I think what God is wanting them to know is that God's view of prosperity is very different than the world's view of prosperity. According to God, prosperity isn't do what's best for you. God's view of prosperity is do what's best for others. Think about how you can be blessed to be a blessing. Think about how you can make the place prosper that you live in, not just your own place, not just your own life, but the lives of others. In some ways, he's speaking to them in light of their rebellion because when they were in Jerusalem, they forgot why they were there. They weren't there so they could have their own city and their own place and their own things for their own desires. They were there to be a people for God's purposes set apart in the world to display what God is like to the world. That's the very nature of Israel. They were called God's son. Later, Paul to the church in Ephesus in chapter five says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love. What is Paul saying? What is God saying? What is the whole scripture narrative saying that when God calls a people and sets them apart for his purpose, he calls them to be his children who display what he's like because they bear his image. And the idea is, I want you to do for others what I've done for you. I want you to be for others what I've been for you. A place of refuge, a place of blessing, a place where I've enabled you to be prosperous at the cost of my own. We're going to hear that in the end, at the end of this message in terms of how he did that for Jesus, through Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We all know this. If the city does prosper, everybody prospers. So it, it does come back. But we, we get in trouble when we go like, okay, the only reason I'm giving is so that I can receive. The only reason I'm serving is so that I can gain. If that's your, if that's your posture, then you already undermine the very nature of what it means to bless. If you bless so that you can be blessed, then you're not actually blessing. Blessing at the very nature is a willingness to pour out without expectation to receive back. That's what it means to bless. And later in the scriptures, we hear that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Why? Because it's the very nature of who God is. And the very creation of the world was God pouring out himself in the expression of creation. It was him giving away. And if that's the very nature of who God is, that he is a giver, then those of us who are made in his image are also meant to be givers. In fact, the way to prosper is to give, which is so counterintuitive to the world because the world says the way to prosper is to gain, is to keep, is to hoard, is to hold. If you, anybody, if you know anybody who's a hoarder, you know they're not blessed. They're enslaved. Giving is really God's means to free you from letting anything hold you in its place. So you can flourish. Listen to what he says, build homes, plant gardens. What, what, what does that mean for Seattle? I just want you to think about your neighborhood, your community, and just say, 
What would it look like to build this place? Rhode Island, when you get there. What does it look like to build this place up, to plant gardens? What is, what is the whole nature of gardens? We're gonna contribute to something that's gonna contribute multiple, multiple times over. That's what that means. How are we gonna invest in this place in such a way that more people get to be blessed because of the blessing? Build houses, plant gardens, marry off your kids, parents, that's a good one for you. What was that? He's saying, prepare them. Get them ready because they're going to have to do the same thing. Train them in the way they should go so when they're old, they won't depart from it. Train your kids to be blessed, to be a blessing so that Seattle is filled with people who know God and his kindness and distribute it everywhere they go. This has something to do with your work. How do you work for the glory of God? Imagine if every single hour at work, every meeting you were in, every uh, committee you led, whatever it was that you oversaw, that you said, I want to do this in such a way that I'm blessed to be a blessing, that others around me prosper at my expense for the sake of God being known at work every day. This could transform Seattle. Sadly, and I know many of you know this, I watched more people do the opposite the last two years. I mean, I grieve. I'm so deeply saddened by God's people doing the very opposite. Cursing instead of blessing. Running instead of giving. Getting away instead of engaging in. Like it just, we almost went the opposite. It's almost like I think God's going, hey, I've got you now in exile because I want to wake you up to what you could do in this city. I mean, some of us are like, man, it's getting really dark in Seattle. That's the best time for God to show up. You know, in 1935, the city of Seattle was burning down. Some of you know the history. It had reached its worst time ever. Most people say it was even worse than what we're experiencing today. There were several businessmen who got together and began to pray. Several of them were not Christians. They just knew they were so desperate that only God could help them. So they began to pray for the city. And it started to change the very fabric of what was going on in Seattle. And many of those business men and women became followers of Jesus as a result. They then kicked off a thing called the prayer breakfast in 1937. They've been doing it every single year since. In 2020, now if you know much about the prayer breakfast, there's one in, in D.C. because of what happened here in Seattle. That started here. It's all over the country. It's all over the world, in fact. There's prayer breakfasts going on. Business leaders, civic leaders coming together saying, God, we need your help. I bring that up because in 2020, they couldn't get together. And so a very small group of people said, let's gather down in Westlake and start praying every Thursday from 12 to 1. Still doing it. In fact, if you were going, what could I do this week to live out this passage? Show up at Westlake at noon and pray with a bunch of other people who, are, who love this city and are fulfilling this passage. Pray to the Lord for the prosperity of your city, for its peace and prosperity. Pray for, pray for the city. So they've been doing it. Since March of 2020, last year they tried doing the prayer breakfast online because we still couldn't gather. It was a flop from what I was told. And then they began to pray together and say, what is God saying to us? And they said, what if instead of one big prayer breakfast in a building or a hotel downtown Seattle where we spend the majority of the time eating breakfast and hearing people talk and maybe five minutes praying, what if we actually redistribute that and we got people to pray in every single home and every single neighbor, or not every home, but every neighborhood in all of Seattle? in greater King County. So in January or yeah, December, I got together with a bunch of leaders at the Rainier Club and we, I just sat back and 
listen, but they cast a vision for what if, instead of one prayer breakfast, we had 2,000 prayer breakfasts happening in homes where people invite their neighbors before work to come and pray with them on April 19th and just say, what do you need prayer for? And how can we pray for our neighborhood and our city together? So that's gonna happen. In fact, I would say, if you, if you wanna do something for Seattle, pray for her. Because God moves in our prayer. And he moves you, to be clear. One of the prophetic voices that spoke into what's about to happen, and it's April 19th, mark it on your calendar. If you wanna hear more about it, I'll send stuff to Josh or somebody. But one of the prophetic voices that spoke into this prayer thing said, I want you to all know that when you pray, you don't change God, God changes you. This isn't about you getting God to accomplish your purposes, it's about you getting lined up with his. And I really believe that God is doing something in this moment, in this region, for his glory. Because like Gideon, sometimes God shrinks his people so they can't take credit for what he does. If you know much about Gideon's army, I think that's happening in the church right now. I think God's going, I'm pruning it for greater fruitfulness. So I want to call you to that. Pray for our city. And then ask yourself, what could we do? Plant gardens, build homes, train up our kids. What could we do that would look like what God called his people to do in Babylon? Where you live, where you work, where you learn and play. I have a friend, his name is Taylor. He's in, he lived in Birmingham for quite some time and he said, you know, his, his kind of version of church planning was, let's start businesses for the good of the city. Let's lead them in a way that looks like Jesus. And then let's do all of our discipleship through the business. And they've started 20 businesses or more in Birmingham. He was going to move away uh, to another city to do it again. And the mayor heard that he was leaving. So the mayor called him up and asked if he could meet with him. And he met with him and he said, you can't leave. And he said, why not? He goes, if you leave, we'll have to raise taxes. He said, what do you mean? He goes, because all those businesses are, are actually changing the very nature of our city. And they're carrying the weight of so many of the needs in our city. If you take off and they all leave with you, we're going to be in trouble. He goes, oh, no, no, the businesses are all staying. It's just me. I'm going to go do it in another city. And the mayor was relieved. And I wonder sometimes with churches who get a not-for-profit not status, because we're supposed to actually make an impact in our city, if we should actually only get it if we can show that we're actually lowering the tax need of the city because of the way we're living in the city. What, what if that was the requirement? I think it, hopefully that would never have to happen. Hopefully all of you are going like, man, we're already doing it, Jeff. We're already living and serving and loving and giving in such a way that the city's tax need is not as high as it would have been if we didn't. That's who we're supposed to be. The world should be looking at us and going, if you weren't here, we would be hopeless. If the church wasn't engaged, what would we do? And the truth is, if you talk to Union Gospel Mission or any other not-for-profit, they will tell you that their biggest force of servanthood is the church. So I want to make sure I highlight that. that. That is true. But maybe there's some of you in the room who are going like, but I'm not doing anything. What if we could double that? What if more people could be giving, serving, living, loving in such a way that the city notices? And even if they don't agree with our message, they love our method because they love what they get to receive when we live like Jesus in the world. So how do we do that? Well, hopefully right now you're going like, Jeff, I feel, I feel inadequate. I feel maybe convicted. I feel a little bit lost. This is maybe overwhelming. 
Well, this is the one thing you have to remember. Remember that God is present in our exile, that he's with you. See, throughout the whole story of scripture, the overarching narrative is God is with his people even when they're not with him. Even when they're not aware of it or they're not paying attention or they're not aligned, he doesn't leave. He's here. And I don't know if when you come to a gathering, you just go like, oh man, I'm here and God is with us. We don't invite him here, just to be clear. He was here before you walked in. Same is true for your workplace. He's already there. You're gonna go to work tomorrow. He's already ahead of you. He's already been preparing the way. He's already got things he's set up for you to walk into. The same is true for your neighborhood. He's there. He's present. And what he doesn't do with his people is he doesn't get them out of exile, but he does get them through with his presence. So I want, I want you to make sure you hear that. God's intent is not to get you out of the difficulties. It's to bring his presence into them. Because without them, you don't know how desperate you are for God. One of the greatest gifts, even though I would never want to do 2020 and 2021 again for me personally, one of the greatest gifts is that I got God's presence and I was more desperate than I've ever been. And the more desperate I became, the more needy I knew I was. And the more needy I knew I was, the more I cried out and said, God, if you don't do it, I can't. I don't have it. I can't do it. And that's the best place to be is really desperate, really needy. Because God comes to those who are desperate and he becomes their help. And the way they get through exile is, is with God. That's it. The way you get through exile is with God. Just say, God, I can't do it without you. Be near to me. And listen to what God says to them. Verse 12, then you will call on me. It's almost like he's saying, you're gonna, you're gonna try this, you're gonna work on this, you're gonna become desperate for me, and then you're gonna call on me. Might take 70 years. <laughs> I don't know if you ever met somebody who like, they came to faith in Jesus later on in their life, and they're like, man, why did it take so long? It's okay. I, whenever it happens, it happens. Some of us, it takes a long time. Maybe there's some of you in the room or online that are going like, I don't know if I need God. Well, God will not give up <laughs> on making sure you know your need for him eventually. He's pursuing you. He says, then you're gonna call on me and then you're gonna come and you're gonna pray to me and I'll listen to you. I love that promise. God doesn't say, you're gonna come to me and you're gonna say you're really sorry and you're gonna make up for all the things you did and then you're gonna clean yourself up and you're gonna get yourself together and then I'll listen to you. No, he goes, then you're gonna call on me and you're gonna pray and I'll listen to you. I love that about God. God, God is not about you jumping hoops or climbing ladders or performing so that he can accept you. He's just about you saying, I need you. That's it. That's like the entry point to a relationship with God is you becoming aware that you need him. Isn't that good news? And then he says, then you're going to seek me and you're going to find me when you seek me with all your heart. The greatest picture of God doing this is Jesus. I mean, this, this whole story of exile in Babylon is just a, a small story of a greater reality that God in the person of Jesus Christ comes and Jesus comes to his own and you know the story, even his own reject him. 
And if there's anybody who knew exile, it was Jesus. I mean, he knew perfect union with the Father and the Spirit in paradise with the angels rightly acknowledging who he really is. And then he comes into the world and nobody does. Pretty much everybody rejects him. I mean, a few of them get it right. By the time he's done, he's all alone, exiled outside of Jerusalem on a cross, being mocked by Romans. His own people are not even near him. His friends have denied or betrayed him. And there Jesus is on a cross, betrayed, rejected, exiled. I mean, it's the picture of what God is saying to his people in Israel. He's saying, I put you out so that I can bring others in. And there Jesus is on the cross, exiled for you and I so that we will never be exiled from God again. And what does he do on the cross? He doesn't say, bless me, Father, give to me, Father, rescue me, Father, destroy them, Father. He goes, no, 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 Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, he blesses when he could have cursed. He loves when he had every reason to reject. And he serves to the point of giving his own life for you and me. Jesus was exiled for you. He was exiled for me. He suffered. He lost for you and me. And thankfully, he didn't stay dead. Amen? He rose again on the third day. And he went to be with his, his disciples again. And he promised them, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And when he ascended to the heavens, the spirit was poured out to dwell in his people's hearts so that you and I will never, ever be exiled from God. We're not alone. He's with you in the middle of it. And he's gone through it himself. And he wants you to be blessed with the presence of God in your life so that you can bring the presence of God to your workplace, to your school, to your neighborhood. Kids, God's called you and set you apart for this. Sorry. So for those of you who already know Jesus, this is your calling. This is who you are. And there may be some of you who are not at a place yet where you believe what Jesus has done for you is for you, that he suffered and died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins to make you right before God of no effort of your own, to, to include you in the family of God forever, to pour out his spirit in your life so you're never alone, so God's presence is with you forever. Maybe you're at that place where you're like, I, I, Jeff, I haven't believed that. I, I, I've never received that. But maybe today it's time for you to come out of exile and to come into the presence of a God who loves you and receive his grace and his mercy through Christ. And for the rest of us who know this and believe this, I want to encourage you, press into thriving. If you find yourself, even as I'm talking, you're like, yeah, but. I just want you to check that but with the power of God. <laughs> I mean, check that but with the presence of God in your life. Because like, I know even me, I'm like, yeah, but you don't know my neighborhood, Jeff. Nobody talks to anybody. Or you, know, you don't know my kids' friends at school. They're not always that nice about their beliefs. Like, but, but, but. It's like, and God's going, yes, but I'm with you. Yes, but I will deliver you. Yes, but I have plans for you. Yes, but I want to prosper you so that you can prosper others. Yes, but God. <laughs> yes, but God is here. Amen? So reach out. 
Reach out to him. He says if you seek him, you'll find him. And maybe as I've been talking, you've been going, I feel desperate. And I just want to give you a moment just to respond to the reality of your desperation. Respond to the reality of the desperation of this city. We have a great opportunity. God shines brightest in the dark, darkest night. Right now, it's pretty dark. But God is with you. God is for you. And God wants to love Seattle through your life. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for my family here and many of them just so good to see their faces and to remember the years that we've had. New faces, Lord, that I don't know, but I'm grateful that you gave me the chance to be with and I pray that they would have heard from you today. That if anything I said was something you wanted to land deep in the heart, Lord, I pray that those seeds would not be taken away from the doubts or the worries or fears of the world. Lord, if there's anyone here who has yet to surrender to you, I pray right now that they would be given your spirit's ability to hear and see with their eyes, the eyes of their heart, that Jesus is for them and loves them. That they would receive what you've done, Jesus, today. And Lord, would you make us a people who can live in the midst of exile as a blessing prospering others, praying for our city, eagerly expecting you to do something that gives Jesus glory here. We pray this in his name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.